Welcome back to Healing Choices, Conversations on Addiction and Recovery. Despite the progress we've made to destigmatize addiction, anxiety, depression, and other mental illnesses, we still have a long way to go, as suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. With the added trauma of the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing both substance abuse and suicide rates increasing. In this special episode, Lori Feaster talks with psychologist for the Houston Fire Department, Dr. Sam Buser, and his daughter, actor and activist Kimmy Buser Clancy, on the connection between substance abuse and suicide, and how we can help those at risk during these traumatic times. Welcome. This is Lori Feaster from the Council on Recovery. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I have two distinguished guests to not only talk about mental health, but also suicide. Um, Here at the council, we are uh, very proactive and looking at all the things that we can do to help our clients. So here we have two distinguished guests. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, uh, this is uh, Dr. Sam Buser. I'm a staff psychologist for the Houston Fire Department, and one of the things I do in that is uh, that I am in charge of suicide prevention programs. Hi, I'm Kimmy Buser Clancy. Dr. Sam Buser is my father, and we host a podcast together called Leaving the Valley. It's a show where we talk about what you should know about suicide. I'm an actor and an activist, and I'm really happy to be here today. Well, thank you both. And thanks everybody for listening. One of the first things I'd like to ask is, what do you think the relationship between substance use and abuse is with suicide? Well, first of all, there's a very strong relationship. and It's pretty rare for our firefighters, for example, to make uh, suicide. They, they respond to suicide attempts and completed suicides a lot. And it's pretty rare for them to do so. And there's no substance abuse involved. In fact, it's more typical uh, that the person who has made a suicide attempt uh, is under the influence of something, often alcohol, sometimes other things. And the reason for that, I think it can be boiled down for a couple of things. First of all, when you're using, you don't have your best judgment. It's pretty simple. And that makes you more prone to make a mistake like, you know, this is a hopeless situation or that I might as well uh, end my life because it's not going to get any better. Or it may just make you make a bad decision about what you're using, how much you're using, uh, what else you're combining. It may make you more impulsive. In fact, uh, substance use typically makes a person more impulsive. So you're more likely to take an impulsive action that could cost you your life. Those are at least a few of the reasons. I would also add that, uh, as we've discussed in our show and what people may already know about suicide, is that um, suicide, thoughts of suicide often tend to make someone feel isolated. They feel very overwhelmed with the burden of carrying around these thoughts. And there's a parallel to that and substance use. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. excessive use of a substance often leads to social isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, There's similar feelings of burdensomeness. So those people who are troubled with thoughts of suicide often feel like they're a burden upon other people. And there's at least some indication of that in terms of people who've suffered from substance abuse. They sometimes have struggled with issues of their own self-worth. So these things parallel each other and and they commingle to contribute to thoughts of suicide, um, especially if you're dealing with substance abuse. 
And I'd add that the research says that those two factors, the sense of being a burden, the sense that they're alone, those two things are particularly related to suicidal behavior. And they're very common with people that are using. Sure. And how, now we're sitting in an uh, isolation situation. COVID. <laughs> That's right. mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing in the treatment field is that our population is increasing because they're using more. I mean, we're not having problems with getting clients. We have clients. And we're seeing the struggles continue and even uh, increase in all activity with alcohol and other substances. So any thoughts around that too? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, this is a time of isolation and, you know, the term social isolation is very prominent right now. I think that does contribute to a feeling of being cut off. I think it's really easy to feel overwhelmed by the news, by what we hear is going on. Um, And then, of course, that leads a lot of people to self-medicate. And, of course, those decisions are more likely to put you down a path, as we were just discussing, where your your decision-making is getting clouded, you're not necessarily making the most coherent choices, and you're more likely to do something impulsive, like an act of suicide, than you would be at, at a potentially different time where you could get out of your house and explore, uh, see friends, meet people in your community. Mm-hmm. That makes me think about the, the issue of boredom, too. I hear a lot of people say, you know, I'm cooped up. I'm, yeah, I can't see anybody. I can't do what I normally So the things that you might do instead of using are, are often you can't do those right now. So, well, I might as well drink. I might as well use. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even um, we're seeing an increase of sales, not just the use, mm. but the sales are high. Mm. Um, and so that's a real interesting piece and and it's even easier to get your alcohol now that it's being delivered delivered right <laughs> and or restaurants even right. selling their mm. alcohol with their meals so mm. um, it's a very interesting time so when you think about uh, uh, Dr. Beeser you're working with the fire department and the first responders and I see uh, I know uh, Kimmy you've had some experience yourself with uh, friends of suicide correct yeah. What do you think makes people, you know, first responders start with that, so prone? Well, I think the number one thing is the, the amount of trauma exposure they have. Uh, I think just anybody would guess that firefighters have a difficult time. They often respond to death. Um, they do most of our EMS services in the country are provided by firefighters. So they're constantly being exposed to trauma. And we know from the research that the more trauma exposure you have, the more you have to try to find some way to deal with that. And one of the ways that people tend to deal with that is to try to numb out. Uh, So substance use is common among uh, firefighters, particularly alcohol use. And the, the one of the major driving forces of that is an effort to basically drown out the effects of all the trauma they're exposed to. The, the, our show started because a friend of mine posted something on social media, which essentially was like, I'm going to kill myself. I mean, that's paraphrasing, but it's not much different than what they actually said. Um, and it was obviously, that's shocking to read. Um, and I was aware this person had been struggling, but uh that was a big leap. Um, I don't believe this person struggled with issues of substance abuse, um, but I, I know this individual had suffered some uh, trauma in their life, like some significant events had happened in their life. And unfortunately, since we've started this podcast, I've seen several more cries for help like that on social media. 
um, it's all too prevalent. And actually, I think social media is the new place where you're going to see cries for help because mm-hmm. our filter or what we share is so different now. I mean, it, there really wasn't a forum 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even to some stretch, where you would share so openly the ins and outs of your daily life. Mm-hmm. And now we are in that space where I think people are, people kind of forget that there's someone on the other side of the keyboard. And I expect that that will be con- like continue to be a place where people will express need for mental health services. And we have also seen where like on Instagram, for example, if you type something like suicide on Instagram, Instagram immediately feeds you an option for help. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll say, do you need to talk to someone? And it'll refer you to resources, which I think is also really great that these services are combining efforts so that you don't have to know to search somewhere else. If you're on Instagram, if you're on Snap, chat, or the different things that exist, that you can really easily access some services. I think that's really important for younger generations who also struggle with issues of suicide, suicidality, and of course, substance abuse. And with that, it's like, so you see this on uh, maybe social media or you hear this. I mean, we as clinicians hear it often in our offices. There's some suicidal ideation or just not wanting to be. And while we're trained clinicians and we ought to know the next thing to do, oftentimes we're feeling very helpless um, with, we may have the instructional piece, but it doesn't necessarily mean we could control the outcome. So mm-hmm. I would how, help us understand what's the, what's the thing that we can do that's going to assist that person. Well, I think the, the first thing I would say is ask. Don't be shy to ask a person if they might have thought of suicide. And a lot of times people are very reluctant to do that. Uh, I think they, you know, they, they're afraid that if I ask this person, are they thinking of suicide, that that'll prompt them to make a suicide attempt. Uh, and the other thing that happens is that people if they say, yes, I have thought of suicide, what the heck do you do then? Now I feel responsible and I don't know how to deal with that. So I don't want to ask because I don't want to hear that answer. We role played on our show uh, how to ask that question because it makes me, even as someone who's invested in this conversation, it makes me uncomfortable to have to imagine talking to someone about that being that direct and it's not you know you we have the social contract which is where we don't always ask questions that we feel might be embarrassing um Mm -hmm. and that's a little different in a psychotherapy space that's sort of what psychotherapy is about is sort of pulling things out into the open and into the room of discussion but um i i think and what research supports asking you know have you ever thought of hurting yourself? Have you ever had thoughts of suicide? Or even asking questions like, um, at times have you thought that you don't want to wake up? That's like a good leading question, that first question of, at times do you think you don't want to wake up? And that might prompt the next question, which is, have you ever thought about hurting yourself with suicide? Can lead that person into the conversation. And of course, Dad, and you can um, clarify this with your expertise, but it tends to have one of two effects. One is if the person has actually thought about suicide, it allows them the opening to discuss where they are. We call it the ramp, the ramp that you slide down into the valley of suicide. 
Are they high, far from the valley? Have they only just occasionally thought, man, things are really difficult and I wish I didn't have to deal with this problem. Sometimes I wish I could sleep forever, which is a passive suicidal thought, but not necessarily an SOS call to people who are actively planning suicide are much further down the ramp, much closer to the valley of suicide. Um, And then of course the opposite can be true if you say, have you ever thought about suicide? And the answer is no then that often kind of holds a mirror up to be like, oh, well, this is how your actions and your words are kind of looking to the outside world. And that can also be an important intervention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I appreciate what you said about passive suicide because that's often um, looked at as well. And uh, we mm-hmm. get parents wondering what to do. Uh, they might hear their teen talk about uh, these types of innocuous um, things they talk, what they say, and, and they're not sure what to do because that directness is really scary and it doesn't sound like a complete action. So uh, I always like to talk about young people. That's a big part of our show. We talk about how to deal with young people too. That it, The first thing I'd say to parents is that don't discount that, that thought. I've heard a lot of parents say, well, my kid would never do that. Children never think of suicide. Well, suicide is the second leading cause of death mm-hmm. for children 10 to 34, or yeah. young people, I should say 10 to 34. Second leading cause of death. Mm-hmm. So when lots of people at that age range do take their lives. So first thing, you got to take it seriously. That doesn't mean you need to go hospitalize them, but it means you shouldn't dismiss it. You want to talk with them about why they're feeling whatever they're, you know, feeling. They're, they're, they're saying, I feel like dying or I wish I didn't wake up. Talk with them about it. what's going on that makes you feel that. Uh, I don't think you should respond to everything as, oh my gosh, you've got to call 911, but you definitely need to follow up on that to understand what's going on. And then depending on what the kid says then, or a young person says, then you, you may need to, you know, get some additional help. Absolutely. I think for parents, there can be a discomfort in imagining that their child could be that depressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, uh, and we were just researching this, uh, there's a discomfort in imagining that your child could be experimenting with substances that are that dangerous. Absolutely. I think one, while we're talking about one uh, young people, there's another resource I just want to point out um, that Obviously, a lot of people are aware of the the National Prevention Line for Suicide, which is 1-800-273-TALK, but you can also text that number, and you can enter chat rooms mm-hmm. on the other website. So if you're a teen and you're not, maybe you can't talk to your parents about this, but you want to be able to speak in your home, there's a chat feature there for you, a text feature there for you that offers mental health resources. And if you're a parent of a teen who's struggled with issues of substance abuse, if you know that they're not in this just quote unquote experimental phase, but that they're actually using much more dangerous substances, finding treatment for young people with a specialization for teens and youth is especially important. This is one of the areas where unfortunately our young people often fall through the cracks because there are not as many treatment centers. Mm-hmm. If you live in a rural area, it might be harder to get treatment specialized for a young person. The good news is the council is a wonderful place to start. And we do have the ability <laughs> yeah. to assess teens and treat teens, not necessarily in a treatment setting, but we are the uh, front door to many options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we do look at that experimentation uh, phase as well and um, even provide uh, options for teens and parents at that point. 
um, oftentimes when we see the parent um, not necessarily understanding the big picture is because they have their own, you know, they come from their own mm -hmm. family right. of origin. Yeah. And right. often it doesn't fall too far from the tree. Yeah. Um, that this is a generational thing. And so that's the other piece I hear often. Um, and in the sense that when there is a suicide in the family, it is more risky for those families that are left uh, for suicide as well. Can you talk about that? Well, we know that uh, there is a, um, a strong family history of, uh, with, of suicide sort of multi-generational. If there's been a suicide in one generation, it greatly uh, increases the risk for subsequent generations. You might think it'd be different than that. You might think that, well, because it happened in our family, I would never let that happen again. But that's not, in fact, what we find from the research is that uh, I, I think one of the things that happens is that uh, in when, when times are very dark, then that becomes an option you might consider. Whereas in a family that that never has happened in, it's less likely to be uh, sort of a, a, an option you might think about. We know that exposure has uh, plays a role in suicidality. Um, there, and I, I think you should elaborate on this point because you know this research better than I do, but the, uh, for, for first responders, for example, there's a rule of 12 yeah, there's uh, there's research that suggests if you've been exposed to 12 or more suicides, that's kind of like a, a magic threshold. If you're over that number, then you're far more likely to consider suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a Houston firefighter, you absolutely in your career have had more than 12 suicides you've dealt with. You know, I've asked this question of people, in the, uh, firefighters and groups, and how many suicides do you think you've responded to? They'll say 30, 40, 50, you know, something like that. So huge numbers. And unfortunately, the more you're exposed to it, the more it becomes something Thing that you might consider kind of like an option yeah yeah oftentimes my clinicians you know we we can certainly call authorities to help if someone's actively suicidal um, but we also you know we get stuck with that passivity too in the sense mm -hmm. that we can do a verbal contract we can have a written contract we can check in with them daily are there other things that can assist those folks that are in that space that aren't necessarily have a plan yet but it's it's on the table so i'm glad you brought up the idea about uh, sort of trying to create a plan with them. And so one of the things that I advocate is the use of a crisis response plan or something similar. Uh, there are variations in this safety plans. And so those are good ideas, but in a more basic, it's sort of the more of a, sort of a clinician talk, right? That's what mm -hmm. we do. Right? Sure. Uh, but uh, for the average person, I think the main thing is connect with those people. If you know someone who's having a hard time, maybe they went through a divorce, maybe they lost their job, maybe they're worried about COVID, whatever, you know, all those combinations right now, reach out to that person. We're all talking about what well, we need to connect. We've got to sort of visually or verbally connect or electronically connect, if you will. But in all times, if you know somebody's having a hard time, what, what people tend to do is to say, gee, I know you're having a hard time, so if you need anything, call me. No, it's not that. It's the opposite of that. If you're having a hard time, I should call you because you're the one that's having trouble. So if I'm really going to be your, your friend, your associate, your, your confidant, your, your person, your caring person, I need to be reaching out. I need to be making the active move on my end. Uh, one of the biggest factors that creates uh, suicidal behavior is the sense of being isolated. And you can address that by talking to that person, just reaching out to them. Even a phone call, a, a postcard, we know there's research that shows that a simple postcard uh, after a person's been treated 
for example, for substance abuse, reduces the suicide rate by 50%, just wow. a postcard. So if you reach out, you're going to diminish the risk of suicide to, to anybody that you're concerned about. I also think it, it's not important that you have to become the suicide expert. No. Like if you have a friend, especially if they start to check multiple boxes, like, you know, they've struggled with issues of substance abuse. And we know there's a correlation with that in mental health issues and sometimes even mental illness. So uh, if you don't have a friend who's in one of, one of these categories or maybe multiple of these categories, you don't have to become a treatment expert. You can cook them dinner and drop it off to their house. You can help them wrangle childcare so they can go to a meeting. You can mow their lawn so one thing is off their plate. And it, it doesn't have to be that you therefore now have all the solutions for how to deal with their mental illness or mental health crisis or substance abuse issue. It's like little things really go a long way. And I think anyone listening to this has probably experienced that themselves or somebody sent them a card out of the blue and it really made their day. And it's like, that's the kind of small intervention that we're talking about. Also, and I think critically to this is that there's a lot of research between a, a triggering incident and a, a two week timeline towards a suicide attempt. So when you say those things out loud, you're like two weeks, that's hardly any time at all. But two weeks is just long enough. If you've been fired from your job, which losing one's job is a huge suicide triggering event, um, just long enough for you to really be worried about how you're going to make ends meet before you maybe get that phone call for that next job. And so when something happens, we're, we're not necessarily even talking about the months of support that's needed. We're talking about a, a very limited two-week time period where if we can if we can tune in a little better to the people in our lives, mm -hmm. a lot of them come out of that valley of suicide. Mm -hmm. And uh, for my, my dad and I have talked about this quite a bit, but later on they'll be like, I don't even know why I was thinking. Right, right. Like, I don't even remember why I was that upset. Like, okay. you know, when someone finds out they're going to get a divorce, of course that news is crushing, right. but a month later, they might feel a whole lot different, but that two weeks into that news, they may have lost perspective. I had to learn a hard lesson after Hurricane Harvey about that. And um, I had people show up and that was in that at a 56 year old time period in my life. I, I was stunned to learn what that meant. You know, how much more resilience I had when people showed up to mm. help or just to be there. Mm. I really learned that definition of friendship, which I was really stunned. I thought, oh, I knew what a friend was, but it was more of, you know, calling and not, not the doing and not the being there. So I really appreciate that point to me because I think I know what that meant to me. And I think that assisted my uh, survival um, mm -hmm. after that so much more. Um, and still can remember those moments of seeing this person at my door ready to work and clean my house. Like, yeah. what? You know? I really like uh, Kimmy's uh, point about you don't have to be a suicide expert. You just have to be an expert of being a friend. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful piece. Bears repeating several times. And especially today. We've got, we, we're isolated. It's a tough deal, even though our state is reopening. Um, there are still lots of things that are happening and um, it, 
it's not necessarily really clear what the pathway is going to be anytime soon. Sure. Well, one of the things uh, maybe, Kimmy, we could talk about are some of the other um, sort of what we consider more vulnerable groups. Maybe a comment or, or two about that might be useful. Yeah, uh, we. I'm happy to talk about that. We haven't touched on them specifically, but veterans are a group that's both very vulnerable to substance abuse and towards thoughts of suicide. Um, Dad, do you want to speak a little bit on that? So one of the things that's good is that if you're a veteran and you qualify for VA services, the VA has a very excellent system uh, for treatment of substance abuse, as well as uh, for mental health care uh, in, a, in a broader sense. If you don't qualify for VA services or, or you just don't like the VA, and some people don't, there are other services that are available. Uh, there's uh, a... Um, a number of uh, organizations that will reach out to veterans, regardless of your sort of uh, on your discharge status, who can be helpful to you uh, for substance abuse and for suicide. That's one thing I would encourage you to do. Um, a couple other groups that often get overlooked and um, which also fall into both categories are trans individuals, members of our trans community, um, who unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, struggle with housing discrimination and job discrimination and healthcare discrimination, which um, predisposes them to more likely self-medicate, which mm -hmm. may cause them to have a substance abuse issue. And they also are often individuals who struggle with uh, suicide ideation, mm -hmm. suicidal ideation. So there's a lot of overlap and, you know, the key towards helping anyone in the trans community with either of those issues is to help increase trans visibility and decrease transphobia. And we have to look at our healthcare systems and our mental health systems, which sometimes do as much harm. Absolutely. Um, and that is an unfortunate reality for our trans men and women. Yeah. Um, sorry, please go ahead. I was even going to say there's discrimination even in the trans yeah. treatment. Yeah. Um, exactly. um, it's very difficult mm -hmm. for a, a trans person to find mm -hmm. treatment that's going to be safe. And culturally appropriate. Individuals who understand what this feeling might be like, what what are the mental health issues, what are the issues in general that the individual might be facing. Um, that's why I think I cut you off, Dad. I was going to say that uh, we are fortunate here in Houston to have the Montrose Counseling Center, which has um, uh, sensitivity to these kinds of yeah. issues. Uh, LGBTQ uh, community uh, is well served by them. And I might add, if you're, uh, if you're listening to this and you're in a different area of the world, uh, oftentimes associated with the universities, there are LGBTQ support mm -hmm. um, groups or support organizations. And that's a good place to start for looking for connections. And then Native people often uh, have substance abuse issues in their history and then uh, also high rates of suicide. Um, the interesting thing with Native people is that most benefit from less of the Western uh, treatment models. So there's a, you know, an idea that in order to get great mental health, you need to speak with an objective third party who you you know, reveal your soul to over the course of many sessions. And that's actually uh, at times an obstacle for Native communities who tend to favor more um, tribal, familial, or peer intervention. And so a lot of the times we've seen historically that 
um, this sort of Western model of treatment gets thrust, even if it's well-meaning, gets thrust right. on the communities and it's really not beneficial. Um, and the same can be said for uh, substance abuse treatment that mm -hmm. you need to have a culturally appropriate response. And there are uh, treatment centers out there, there are far less of them and they are far less funded than a lot of the more Western models. But right. uh, if we're really serious about intervening between substance abuse and between suicidal thought, we need to actually meet our native communities on their grounds, in their mm -hmm. terms, and ask them, what are the services that would actually be beneficial for you? Fabulous. So I guess the one, the last question I did think about, how do we reduce suicide? What, what is, how can we help as a community? What, what are the things that we can do? So uh, that's a great question. And to me, the answer is you've got to bring it out of the shadows. Most people still, you know, if you have a suicide in your family, if you've had that unfortunate experience, people often won't talk about it even in their own families or certainly outside the family. There's such a much stigma involved. I think it's important to begin to see suicide is a mental health issue. This is not something, a, a weakness or a failing, or that somehow you failed your loved one because you didn't realize they were suicidal. It's a mental health issue, and it needs to be an issue we're willing to talk about. So in our podcast, it, it's uh, the subtitle is The Other Hard Talk You Need to Have with Your Family. You've got to be able to talk about this. Uh, it's the 10th uh, leading cause of death in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death of young people. We need to talk about this. It's the number one healthcare problem we're not willing to talk about. Mm -hmm. So you got to talk about it. How many times do you see a PSA about buckling your seatbelts or don't smoke? We see that all the time. But there are more people that die by suicide every year than die in motor vehicle accidents. Yeah. And there are more people that die by suicide than in homicides, but we hear about that all the time. So we need to begin talking about this in an open and caring and compassionate way. That's the, that's the key. I would add that suicide is preventable. Mm -hmm. Suicide is treatable. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this notion that somehow if someone gets this idea, there's like a myth that someone gets this idea that they might want to take their life there's nothing you can do to stop them. And there's just, that's just not true. I'm not saying we should be policing everyone, but that's just not true. And uh, suicide, like my dad was just saying, suicide, there were more deaths in the US last year from suicide and from motor vehicle accidents. And we need to get to a point where we all understand suicide a little bit more that way, the same way if I saw you not buckling up in the car, I would be like, hey, Sam, put on your seatbelt. We need to have that same attitude about being like, you know, Sam said something really cryptic yesterday, and it kind of concerned me. Probably I should pick up my phone and call him today, see what's going on. It's not, we're not talking about, you know, these insane efforts where we have to rebuild the structure of our society. We're talking about person-to-person -person love and connection. And we're talking about a better understanding of mental health services, more access to mental health services, and uh, destigmatizing seeking mental health services in general. Right. Well, I think you also answered the question about how do we reduce substance use? I mean, they're hand in hand, and this is really where the, oh, this is why they commingle so much. Mm -hmm. that you could just replace the word suicide 
and insert substance abuse through most of this conversation yeah. and be spot on. That people suffer with substance abuse because they don't know how to get mental health services, which might help them with those coping strategies that they're missing. The social stigma about it, uh, the yeah. resistance to acknowledging that this is going on, our fear of what happens if we point it out, all those things. It's very similar, you're right. Well, I so appreciate both of your expertise and willingness to talk today. It's been enlightening and very helpful. Is How can the audience um, listen to your podcast? What's a, what's a way to get in touch with that? Kimmy, this is your, your forte. <laughs> yeah, I'll say the plug. Um, we, you can listen to us through our website, which is leavingthevalley.com. We're also available on every major podcast platform, wherever you get your other podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, you can find us there too. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict, you name it. <laughs> But um, Leaving the Valley is the name of our podcast. Leaving the Valley, we'd love to have you join us. Well, I think it's been a delight, and I so appreciate you both. Um, and audience, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time and uh, listening to this today. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed being with you. It's a great topic and glad to be uh, helpful with the, the council. We support you guys. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. Thanks for having us today. This podcast is sponsored by the Council on Recovery, Houston's largest nonprofit provider of prevention, education, outpatient treatment, and recovery services. For more information on the Council's work, you can visit www.councilonrecovery.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you or your loved one needs help with an addiction or co-occurring disorder, call 713-914-0556 to schedule a screening or assessment. You know someone who needs us.